on WHMP. And welcome to Talk to Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. Bill Newman is off. Um, last night, uh, a, a case came to my attention that I was unaware of. It is breaking news for me, even though uh, it is about an incident that occurred uh, back on April 4th, uh, close to midnight, when a uh, Holyoke resident, uh, Marisol, I think it's pronounced Triush. We'll find that out uh, in a moment. She pulled out of the McDonald's parking lot on King Street in Northampton. Uh, she's 60 years old. She weighs about a pound and a half. I think she's about five feet tall. And English is her second language. Uh, she turns right. She's driving uh, in a way that complies with all uh, relevant uh, law. Um, but apparently she has a headlight out, and um, what ensues from there is videotaped on the new dash cameras and that the uh, Northampton Police Department has uh, adopted as their policy. Um, it's an extraordinary story. We found out about it. You're able to watch the video. It was reported by Dusty Christensen on the shoestring, and I watched the video two times last night and then called um, the attorney uh, for the woman, Marisol Driush, uh, who is Dana Goldblatt, uh, the attorney here in Northampton who has handled police uh, uh, excessive force claims in the past and currently has now two of them, I think, pending against the Northampton Police Department. And Dana graciously agreed to come in and explain the situation to us today. She's here in studio with us. Hello, Attorney Goldblatt. Hi, Buzz. It's great to be here. Thank great. you for having me. Oh, I'm so grateful that you did. This is an important story. Um, uh, allegations of police uh, excessive force is something that we all should be paying attention to. And some of us are always surprised when it happens in a municipality like Northampton, where so many people profess to understand uh, that de-escalation should be the rule. Um, this video is shocking, Dana. Could you tell us from your client's perspective, what happened that evening, uh, that night, close to midnight on April 4th? Uh, my client's perspective is well represented on the video. She was having trouble understanding the officer. He was speaking very quickly. Um, he wasn't saying what you would expect to hear at a stop. He didn't say license and registration right away. He started talking. He introduced himself and said something about recording. Uh, she doesn't speak English very well. She didn't understand him, and she kept saying, what, what, I don't understand. I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I just have to say, I was shocked watching the video at how many times it, it was a, uh, his language was laced with swear words, and the the, the beeps exceed the, the words that you can actually understand. Oh, the, you got a redacted copy. Every time uh, they mentioned why they pulled her over, they would redact. So those were not all swear words. When there's an there's a period where they scream at her, stop resisting, stop resisting, and they stop effing resisting, stop effing resisting, and those are bleeped not because of the swear word, but because of the word resisting. Oh, okay. So right. that's an allegation that she was resisting arrest specifically, and not um, not that, so that wasn't beeped because of the okay. swear words. Okay, I shouldn't have interrupted you then. So what happens is he goes. I think that the door hurt. He yanks her door open. 90 seconds after he first comes and approaches her. And tell us what happens then. Uh, her arm got caught on the, um, uh, on the seatbelt. So he's dragging her out, but she can't get her arm loose because he's pulling too hard. And you know how those seatbelts lock when, they're, when they get a sudden... So it's locked. It's not giving at all. 
and she can't get out. He's pulling on her. You can see he's shaking her back and forth like a rag doll, trying to sort of shake her loose so her head is going back and forth. And she's trying to stabilize herself, and she wraps her arms around him, and it, she, you can see she grips his belt. And as he drags her out, that's how that's how she sort of stabilizes in the end. So she's not she's thrown. flailing for balance. You can she's see flailing for balance, video. and then she grabs his belt, and then they pull out, and then he's able to pull her out. Um, at some point, when she has her hands on his belt, uh, behind behind his back is the baton, and she's grabbed the baton because it's sticking out. She, that's what she's holding on to. So when he throws her to the ground, his baton comes free because it's still in her hand. And that's that's how the baton winds up in her hand. She didn't know what it was, obviously, or why there was something in her hand. This but, is all happening very fast. Yeah, it's very fast. And uh, that's clear from the video. And he's screaming at her. Um, she's screaming for help. It's very upsetting to watch. And um, she had no idea why it was happening to her. She did not know why she was being dragged out of the car. She didn't know why she was being yelled at. Uh, she says repeatedly, I don't understand. I yeah, don't understand. I don't understand. Um, she did not understand what he was trying to tell her. She kept, He kept saying, you didn't stop. And she kept saying, I am stopped. <laughs> like yeah. She didn't understand what he was trying to convey about he meant stop in this technical sense of how quickly you pull over. He thought she pulled over too slowly. So that's considered, the legal term for that is failure to stop. But she's English is not her first language, and he hears this person. It must have seemed psychotic to her. They're stopped by the side of the road, and he's telling her she's not stopped. And she keeps saying, "I am stopped. You can see me. I am stopped." It's also when he, when he said when she said, "What? Why are you stopping me?" Or words to that effect. He says something about her effing uh, headlight, and she says, "I don't understand." And she starts to say, "I left the McDonald's. I was driving slowly." Because she was trying to figure out what she, how her operation could have been bad. Yeah. She didn't understand what he meant about her effing headlight being out. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it's upsetting to watch. And you said, you call this excessive force, and I find that interesting because uh, that's my impression. I don't like this degree of force to be used on people. But the reality is that for police, this is not considered within that culture and within that institution excessive. So he could not be disciplined for this. Even if we find, even if even if Marisol were to sue and rewarded a million dollars for violations, Marisol being your client, yeah, yeah Marisol Drish, a uh, million dollars for all of the constitutional violations, there's still no discipline for this officer because the police have determined that he did nothing wrong by policing. So this is not for policing excessive force. And in fact, uh, Jody Casper made a statement that she is forbidden from disciplining him because according to standards of policing that they reviewed, this is what he was supposed to do. So she can't discipline him. The mayor of Northampton, who will be on the other side of your claim, right? And uh, you'll be making a claim against city of Northampton. We'll talk about the presentment you're going to make. Um, but uh, the mayor was quoted in Mass Live uh, saying, it is clear to me that a slower, more considered interaction and more effective communication could have avoided the escalation of the situation. I, the mayor, Mayor uh, Gina Luis Sierra, was very concerned to see the situation escalate to such a degree on the video. And I strongly disagree with how the officer handled it. So that's, That's nice. It's nice to disagree. I disagree. But as long as the mayor hires police, she has about as much authority to control whether they do this as I do. We can disagree, but once they're hired to do policing, this is what they do. It, her response reminded me, actually, of... You showed it to me this morning, and I was thinking, you know Fantasia, 
that movie? Vaguely remember. Okay, there's Sorcerer's Apprentice. Mickey Mouse gets tired of doing, of filling a cistern with water for his the sorcerer. So he gets the broom and he enchants it to carry the water for him and he falls asleep. And he has this dream of absolute power that he can enchant things and it's wonderful and he controls the seas and the stars. He wakes up and he's drowning because the broom is continuing obsessively to fill water in the cistern which has <laughs> overflowed and filled the tower. And he tries to stop it because I'm sure he strongly disagrees with the decisions the broom is making. But he can't because the broom only does one thing, it carries water. Mm. And when he tries to stop it, it actually multiplies and then there are a thousand brooms and they're all carrying water and he's going to die. And the only thing that's, because he cannot stop the brooms from doing the thing brooms do when they're enchanted like this. What stops him is the sorcerer comes in and he gets rid of all the brooms and he disenchants it. And this kind of response, I disagree with what the broom is currently doing, seems like Mickey Mouse to me. Mm. And Mickey Mouse would die if the sorcerer didn't come in and, and get rid of the brooms. So I appreciate the mayor disagrees with it. I disagree with it. But at some point, we have to stop being Mickey Mouse and start being the sorcerer or we're all going to die. <laughs> like this is that in the story, they all die. Obviously, we wouldn't die. But there will be an incident that's going to be more serious than this, certainly. So, Attorney Dana Goldblatt, how do you, what do you do? Uh, are you the sorcerer? Is your client the sorcerer in this situation? And, and where do you go from? Uh, unfortunately, we don't have time to really flesh out uh, how disturbing the video is. What's on the video is disturbing. This is a very small woman. English is her second language. He's barking out orders to her. Within 90 seconds of stopping her. He's cursing her. at her. He's using the F word repeatedly. Just repeatedly. He calls her, by the way, an effing B as he's talking to his uh, other folks who come by afterwards. Thank you for not saying it on the air, but yes, we, yes. And um, so, so, and afterwards, I think there's some comment about her being undocumented that's not on the video that oh, I understand. I, I, that, I, I actually asked about that. Uh, he, he asked if she's ERO. He's asking if she's the RO, which is the registered owner. Oh, okay. So that was not a mention of ERO. Of I was unconcerned. I was concerned that he was inquiring about her status as right, well. Right, 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 right. That would, would have, be that was a concern for me. So thank you for clarifying that. But in any event, so, uh, we have uh, this situation where the police chief says, as you just laid out for us, that it's within department policy, this, this behavior. We have the mayor saying he should have been... De oh, and I think that this officer was sent for further training in de-escalation, right? Afterwards. I'm sure he's going to receive lots of training in de-escalation and he doesn't have to do it because that's not the rules. <laughs> he's going to receive all the training in the world. You can train all you want. If you can't punish him for doing this, if this is considered his job, it doesn't matter how much you talk to him. This, to me, is Mickey Mouse trying to stop the broom. Mm. You so don't train the broom to do the other thing. Once you've enchanted the broom, you get rid of the broom. So I'm going to encourage people to, to go to the shoestring and to look at the video to read Dusty Christensen's article from yesterday, I believe. Um, Mass Live also does a nice piece on this, and to read that. And please look at the video. As disturbing as it is, it's important. So um, what do you do as attorney for uh, Marisol? Uh, where do you go from here? Uh, the next step is called a presentment of a claim, uh, because Marisol would be bringing a claim against the officers who assaulted her. Uh, that... And that claim would be against them in their official capacity because they're working on behalf of Northampton and all of us. So uh, the rule for that 
is that I first present the claim to the city because they will be responsible for paying whatever. Whenever the, it's municipality or a government entity, you mm-hmm. have to present the claim before you file suit. And that's a relatively informal process. It's basically you write a letter that says this is what happened and this is why it was bad and this is why I would win a lawsuit. And then we'll talk if Northampton wants to talk. I haven't had a situation yet where Northampton has engaged in that process, but maybe this is the this is the one where they might. Um, and uh, when you say to, talk, you mean negotiate. Yes, yeah, negotiate about uh, about a settlement from Marisol and try to figure out what would be the amount that would make her whole. That's the goal for lawsuits. Someone has been damaged. They hurt her. They hurt her physically. They hurt her emotionally. She's currently in a state where she couldn't watch the video with me. When we came in, it was too upsetting because it's re-traumatizing her. She's been assaulted. And she's been assaulted by the people who are supposed to protect her. So it's a lot. Um, and... The goal of any lawsuit is to make her whole. The focus is on her. What are her damages and what would it take so that in the end she feels like based on what happened, having had this happen to me and having received this amount of money, I would do it voluntarily. Mm. I am now whole. I would agree to that voluntarily. If you were to tell me I'm going to be surprised at night, pulled out of a car, thrown to the ground, sworn at, sweared at, hit and pepper sprayed and then accused of crimes... Uh, and live with that uncertainty for a while, how much would it cost for me to do that voluntarily? And that's the goal. That's the number you try to reach. So we try to make her whole. So if you make her whole in that regard, if the city agrees to make her whole in that regard, then uh, the case is over. You sign, there's a payment made, there's releases signed, and that's the end of the story. If not, what happens? Uh, after that, it's a lawsuit. And we bring, the, we bring a lawsuit, a traditional tort lawsuit claiming that civil rights violations against her and tort claims against her and, uh, against, I'm sorry, against the city and the officers. Um, I feel like it's important to, in that context, to think about that this is, the lawsuit is a victim-centered process uh, in the sense that she is asking to be made whole. Even if she wins, even if the city agrees that there was wrongdoing, the officers aren't disciplined, and there's nothing that the city can do to prevent them from doing it again because they cannot be disciplined or removed from their job for doing this because there is official findings that this is appropriate and proportionate police work. If you have police work done in your city, this is what it looks like. Well, That's important to remember. Um, we, we are running out of time, but I, I have one more question that I can't help but ask you. And uh, Dan, I'm sorry, it looks like Dan's a chick to talk to you too, but we have other guests on uh, online here. But I, I have to ask you, as somebody who knows Northampton very well, North, Northampton, most of us regard Northampton as sort of a, a model of uh, aspirations to have policing done in a way that is appropriate and uh, not inhumane and not discriminatory, and not violent unnecessarily. What are your thoughts as somebody who's an observer and who deals with those people who claim they've been victimized by those police? Tell us what your thoughts are about Northampton's approach to policing in the context of these kinds of events. It's not really different than any other city's approach to policing in the context of these kind of events. These are police. They do what they do. They have contracts that say you can't discipline them for doing this because they've been hired to do this. So it's not about how we feel. We can regret the consequences when it gets out of control, but that's a little late in the game to regret those consequences. 
And in terms of those people who are abolitionists, you know, police reformers, um, uh, what do you say to those people when they see this happen and they say, see, told you so? I say, yeah, that's the problem with policing. You're right. Policing was invented in the 19th century to largely subdue the Irish, right? This is not an eternal institution of uh, anthropological significance to humanity. It's a blip. It's a post-capitalist blip that happened to control a workforce under capitalism. It's violent, it's brutal, and it's intended to be so. And you can't have them without having violence and brutality. So if you don't want that, you have to come up with something else. The abolitionists are right. There's no way around it. What a great place to leave it. I want to thank you so much, Dana Goldblatt. We're going to be pestering you um, to come back and keep us informed on what's happening. This is an important case uh, for us to keep track of, and um, I think it's exhibit A of what happens when de-escalation becomes escalation. So I want to thank you, Dana Goldblatt, and uh, keep us informed. We're going to be right back. Thank you so much, Buzz. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny little necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone. Two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build solar right and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. A Northampton man contends with his slow passage into blindness. What's that like? Andrew Leland's new book, The Country of the Blind, is part memoir, part historical and cultural investigation. Leland's determined not to merely survive the transition, but to revel in that which makes blindness enlightening, accepting uncertainty, connecting with others across differences. Warm and funny, The Country of the Blind is an exhilarating tour of a way of being most of us have never paused to consider. Pick up The Country of the Blind at Northampton's independent bookstore, Broadside Bookshop. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to Talk the Talk. And speaking of talking the talk, wow, I am so impressed with a book that uh, was brought to my attention a couple weeks ago. And uh, 
We are just so lucky to have one of the co-authors of the book. The book is The First Ladies. It is written by Marie Benedict and Victoria Christopher Murray. We have uh, w- joining us uh, right now is Victoria Christopher Murray. Victoria, I am just so impressed by this book. Oh, well, thank you for having me on to talk about it. I can't wait to talk about it with you because um, uh, looking through this book, there was uh, this story, it's a, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal story that uh, I knew nothing about. I knew nothing about civil rights activist Mary McLeod Bethune, who turns out to be a really important history uh, person in our nation's history, particularly in the civil rights arena, and First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt and the extraordinary relationship between the two of them that I knew nothing about. Why don't you tell us uh, why you and Marie uh, Benedict decided to write a book about these two, what you call the First Ladies? Yes. Well, it was interesting because this book came actually as a result of our first novel together. We wrote a book called The Personal Librarian about a black woman who helped J.P. Morgan build his um, his collection, his rare art and manuscript collection. And the only thing is that no one knew that Belda Costa Green was black until she passed away. And when Marie and I, and I should say this, Marie is a white author and I am a black author. When Marie and I toured the country for the personal librarian, people were very impressed with the book, but they were more interested in our friendship. Our friendship that had started out as just two authors writing together um, to becoming really good friends and to becoming like sisters. And so we then thought that for our second project, people wanted to understand this. People wanted to understand us. People wanted to talk about us. We saw that there was a hunger for the discussion of race. And Marie knew a little bit about the friendship between Eleanor and Mary. It's not something that was talked about in the mainstream papers, although you can find a lot about it in the black newspapers during that time. And so this was an extraordinary story of friendship between a very powerful white woman, a powerful black woman during a time of Jim Crow and segregation when White people and black people could not sit down and eat together. They couldn't even shake hands in public. And we just thought it would be a great story to tell, um, almost give a formula of how people could have this kind of relationship today. It must have been, as uh, two people with a deep friendship that sort of, I don't know where the right that surpasses, that, that uh, uh, transcends the barrier that race so often uh, presents mm-hmm. in forging relationships in, in this uh, society. Um, as those two people, for you to have uh, actually embedded yourself in this relationship between these two powerful women of different races who uh, ignored race in forging this important relationship. It must have been so motivating for you. It really was. You know, Marie and I kid around a lot because we say, this book is kind of semi-autobiographical because we could imagine the friendship between the two of them and the things that they spoke about. 
um, because we share those kinds of things. But it was very motivating and encouraging because of how our country is today. And while we talk about how polarized we are, there is just as much of a hunger for us to come together. Yes, there are fringe people who don't want that, but there's just as much of a hunger to come together. And we feel like these books that we want to write um, can be safe places for people to have good conversations on things that they didn't know, things that they were glad to find out, questions they want to ask, questions they had always been afraid to ask. And so as we were writing it, not only did we want to inform people about the stories and entertain, because we're still authors, so we always remember that we must entertain, but we really feel like there's a mission behind these stories, that this is a very safe place for people to read, to learn, to ask questions, and maybe to develop new friendships themselves. I, I love that you call it a mission, and, and it's so interesting to me. This book begins uh, being narrated by, um, by Mary McLeod Bethune back in 1927 on the Upper East Side in New York, and um, it's this first time that Mary meets Eleanor Roosevelt at this luncheon that Eleanor is throwing at this grand townhouse, I guess, in New York City. Yes. And and, and Mary is just being uh, on the cusp of being known because she is this, uh, out, uh, what, outspoken um, civil rights activist as a yes. black female in 1927. Here we are 97 years later. And you would think that the arc of history, as uh, Dr. King said, uh, moves in, in a way that would have made this old history. We'd look and shake our heads. But here we are in Florida. This book would be banned. We wouldn't be allowed to read this book if we were going to school. Yeah. Uh, what say you it, about that part of our history? Yeah, isn't that isn't that something? You know, we we often ask Marie and I as we were writing, what would Mary and Eleanor think of today's times? Because the 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 scene that starts the book, where the women are brought together, it was Sarah Delano Roosevelt, Franklin's mother, who brought them all the women of top organizations together to speak of their common objectives and goals. And the white women would not sit down at a meal with Mary. They wouldn't and eat with a black woman. They wouldn't eat with a black woman. And that's a true story. That really happened. Most of the book really happened. The fiction part comes in with we don't know what the dialogue was, but we could imagine, we could extrapolate it based on what we know about the women. And you would think that right now we'd be, oh, my goodness, we're so shocked, but we're going through those same types of things. It would be disingenuous to say that nothing has changed because some progress has been made, although I feel like we're going backwards now. Yeah. And um, people often ask us about our books being banned, not just this one, but our last book as well. And we said, ban them. We have the T-shirts ready. We want to wear a shirt that says, I wrote a banned book <laughs> um, <laughs> because that's like when we were kids, whatever our parents told us not to do, that's what we would do. Um, I, you know, we hope that they're not banned because then you're stopping people from learning, from reading, from being entertained. 
who are you to say what someone can read and what they can't read? Um, no one should have that power over anyone except for the parents of the children. That's exactly um, right. Well, listen, I, you know, may I make a comment about please, what was Dan. just said? Yeah. Yes, this is Dan. Yes, I, I think it's beautiful what you just said about censorship because you're absolutely right. But I would I even add to that that the Internet will make that censorship largely impossible to enforce, right? I mean, that is one of the transcending yeah. powers is you can ban them in books, you can ban them in there, and I think it's a badge of honor that you get to write and say what you uh, experience in these stories, and it will circumvent the censors. It won't work. It just It's a feel-good measure, I think, for somebody's political base and political future, but your, your stories actually get more powerful by the censorship because you get added to a special list. Well, I think, Sorry. Victoria and Christopher yeah. Murray, my, my response to that, Dan, is you're absolutely right in terms of the mission, like what's the end of the story, but it's the reading of this book. There are details in this book, and I, I, we're going to take a break when we come back and speak with Victoria Christopher Murray about the book The First Ladies, um, written by her and Marie Benedict as co-authors. Uh, What's really interesting to me is you mentioned Jim Crow and it's the Great Depression and it's FDR's New Deal and Mary and Eleanor are, Eleanor is introduced to lynching. She didn't know about the extent of lynching until Mary told her about it. There's just so much that should be read in a book like this, in this particular book, that banning the book does take away from us. Although, Dan, your point is well made that uh, the internet makes complete silencing much more difficult. We're going to continue our conversation with Victoria Christopher Murray right after these messages. Stay with us. Facing multiple charges, including driving under the influence. Conway Fire, along with Charlemont and Deerfield Fire crews, performed a river rescue last night. Four Rhode Island women were tubing in the Deerfield River from Bardwell's Ferry Bridge when one flipped her tube in an area without access to shore, and the group called 911. Rescue teams located the women stranded on shore downstream and brought them to Stillwater Bridge, the next access point on the river. One woman was transported to Cooley Dickinson with an injured ankle. Mostly cloudy this morning, showers developing this afternoon. That rain could be occasionally heavy and steady. A high of 78 to 82. Evening showers, chance for some thunder and lightning, and then clearing out overnight, a low of 56 to 62. Mostly sunny, 80 to 84 tomorrow. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. 
which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money, which is true. But as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information and the Arts. Go out to eat, save 30%. Get a guitar or take lessons, save 30%. Pork chops, rug cleaning, hypnotherapy, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. Technicians, this is your chance. Get up to a $5,000 sign-on bonus at Gary Rome Hyundai or refer a technician to get a $2,500 referral fee. Be part of the family and receive truly exceptional compensation and full benefits. Join the Time Magazine's National Dealer of the Year team with a proven track record of team members averaging over 10 years at Gary Rome Hyundai. Technicians get up to a $5,000 sign-on bonus or refer a technician to get a $2,500 referral fee. To learn more and apply, go to GaryRomeHyundai.com slash family. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back talking about the uh, book that was uh, just uh, published uh, in hard copy called The First Ladies, just published, I think, in June. Um, It is co-authored by Marie Benedict and by Victoria Christopher Murray. And Victoria is with us uh, today. And... uh, I was, um, I guess the word is moved, um, by Eleanor Roosevelt becoming the first lady of the United States in 1933, and as she's trying to acclimate herself to that role, um, uh, Mary McLeod Bethune, uh, who has become a close friend of First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, the civil rights activist, introduces Eleanor Roosevelt to the horror of lynching, the frequency of lynching, and what the definition of lynching was at the time. Can you talk a little bit about that, Victoria? Yes, because, you know, that was an interesting um, part of the book for us because that was a very special project to Eleanor and Mary. The only thing as they began doing it, Eleanor, like most people then and most people now, as horrific as what I'm about to say, um, she thought that lynching was just hanging, was just taking someone, putting a rope around their neck and hanging them from a tree. And that in itself would have been awful. But lynching was not that. Lynching was a complete celebrated event where they would Uh, put ads in the newspaper, tell people, come out this Sunday, 
they would show up in their Sunday best with their children. We have pictures of that. And then the person would be tortured. They would be dragged in the street, and then their bodies burned, and then they would be hung from the tree. And the thing that was so interesting is that at any point in time, the person was still alive. Then body parts were cut off of them, given away or sold as souvenirs, even sometimes displayed in storefronts after the person was gone, where they would either dump the, the body in a river or dump them on the porch of their relative's home. And um, one of the things as we were writing those scenes, before we started writing those scenes, because I think we, have to under, we had to understand it before we could write, um, Marie had to look at some pictures that I shared with her of what lynching was. And the thing that was so as horrible, as you, and we have pictures of all of that, as horrible as it was, the one that really broke her down into tears was the one where there were families standing around in their Sunday best with their children, because that means that you were going to perpetuate this act. You were going to keep it going. And so that became something that was so dear to Eleanor and Mary's heart. And that was probably one of the things that they were not able to accomplish. They were trying to get the anti-lynching bill passed. They knew they needed FDR's help. FDR listened to them, but he said, and this is a quote, he said, I cannot care about 90 men being lynched a year when I'm trying to put millions back to work. It was an either-or for him. One was going to happen or the other. He was absolutely right about that. He would have lost all the New Deal programs, um, and he had to make a decision. And that was tough. And then the anti-lynching bill didn't get passed until 2018. So I don't think Eleanor and Mary would have expected it to take that long. Uh, this is Dan again. And uh, what you just said brings up the great contradiction that we have today is that the large parts of the Democratic Party in the 1930s were the, the segregationist South. They provided a huge base of support for Franklin Roosevelt. So yeah. he very much was making that calculation based on his own party's resistance uh, yeah. and contradictions blue, blue there. Democrats, as blue, they call them. Yeah, and the Dixiecrats that, you know, and they would eventually separate from the Democratic Party after, you know, the 60s, but 30 years prior, they were very much within... Sorry, just, it's just a comment. It's a great comment, and, and because the issues that um, Victoria Christopher Murray and Marie Benedict uh, address in the First Ladies, are, they're so rich and so deep, It obviously about race, but it's also... You know, the, I always love this us. book, The Death Penalty is Torture. It's about the, the Dark Ages all the way to abolition. I think it's written by a guy named uh, John Bessler is his name. And uh, he traces torture, how it attended hanging, and how often it involved racial animus and um, just this hatred to an excess that we can only imagine. And uh, yeah. so lynching is really part of it. But it's also this friendship. Uh, what do you, how do you account for the depth of this friendship between Eleanor Roosevelt 
and um, and Mary McLeod Bethune, who, by the way, everybody, she should become a household name. <laughs> Read yeah. this book, and oh, you'll I'm understand. Hoping. Shame on me for not having known about her no, until oh, I opened no, this book. Just, yeah, and and that's why we love writing these books because, as I was uh, speaking, telling you, I've known about her since I was eight years old. She was the first like famous person I knew, and I figured she had a college, so one day maybe I could have my own college too. Um, when I first learned about her. But I think what accounted for the friendship between these two women is as different as they were, because um, Eleanor grew up very privileged. She was Eleanor Roosevelt before she got married, and she was Eleanor Roosevelt after she got married. She was Teddy Roosevelt's niece. And um, and she married not a close first, uh, not a close first icky cousin kind of thing. It was a distant cousin. Um, but um, she grew up in a very privileged, though sad, situation. Mary, on the other hand, was the 15th of 17 children born, and she was the first one born free. She had 14 siblings older than her who had been enslaved, as were her parents and her grandmother. And she was the only one in her family to become educated, um, and only by her own volition. She was the one who wanted to become educated. Her parents didn't understand it. They were like, we have to work this farm. So Eleanor and Mary were two very different people who had the same goals. And they both had a love for young children and making sure children could be educated, especially girls. Um, Mary felt that would become the great equalizer, education. And Eleanor felt the same way from a different view. And they came together with that, with the same kinds of personal tragedies in their life with their husbands. And I think they just bonded over all of their sameness and none of their differences. And I think also they became so close that they could make big mistakes with each other. Because one of the things I loved in this book were the mistakes, were the racial mistakes they made and how they came back from that. And I also love that it wasn't Eleanor alone making racial mistakes, that Mary made a couple of racial mistakes too. And that they were close enough where Eleanor could say, now, come on back here, Mary. Come on back. Um, we, we need to think about this and talk about this. And that kind of friendship comes from having the same experiences of the heart, even if you didn't have the same experiences in life. That is so interesting. I, I know that, Victoria Christopher Murray, you were... Uh, invited to the unveiling and the installation of Mary McLeod Bethune's yes, statue in, in D.C. So let me just set it up with a short sentence. In 2022, that statue, she was the first black person to have a state-commissioned statue in the U.S. Capitol's Statuary Hall. And although uh, your co-author and dear friend Marie Benedict couldn't attend, she was on the phone as you took in this incredible sight of the unveiling of this statue of the person you've been who've been part of your life in your writing. Uh, for, that must have been a powerful, powerful moment for you. Oh my gosh, it was so amazing. First, first of all, I'm going to shock both of y'all right now. 
in order for her to be there, she is one of the two statues every state gets to. And she came from Florida, and it was Ron DeSantis who said, let's put Mary McLeod Bethune in. Oh, stop it. I don't know it. what you oh. were drinking that day. <laughs> I don't know what was in the water, but I'm really happy he drank it. I'm not because you just made my head explode. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I guess way to go, Ron. I don't know what to say to that. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I think that just shows like how all of us are just these complex human beings because that would be nothing that anyone would ever imagine. But she was Mary McLeod Bethune set the stage for the civil rights movement. If she had not had this friendship with Eleanor, half of the things that FDR did, as you discover in the book, wouldn't have happened. When he desegregated the military, he didn't do that because he was like, oh, let's do this. He did that because he was pushed. He was pushed by his wife and Mary and the black cabinet, and he desegregated the military, and that became the foundation for desegregation across the country in everything. That was the first place where it happened. And so she she was the force behind everything that happened in the 1960s. She was the force that first set it up. She's the reason why African-Americans began the, the switch from the Republican Party towards the Democratic Party, because she said it doesn't matter. It's not the party. It's whoever has our best interests in heart. And she would personally go and not only register people to vote, even though the Klan marched on her school and tried to stop her from doing that, but she never stopped. And she, she just taught black people the importance of voting. She taught black people the importance of education. She taught white people that we must live together in harmony. Um, she was a force. She was a force. That's a good place to take a break. We are uh, speaking about the book, The First Ladies. Um, we are speaking with Victoria Christopher Murray, the co-author, along with her close friend and co-author, Marie Benedict. We're going to take a break, but we'll be right back. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest, and everybody knows about Mississippi This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Some people make insurance sound so simple. You know, just call 1-800-INSURANCE. We'll save you money. Sounds pretty simple. So you call, give your credit card, and you're insured. They're hoping you'll never call back. Hoping you'll never have a claim. Because that's when insurance isn't so simple. In fact, it can get outright complicated. So many insurance claims have some little thing, or not so little thing, that ends up with a difference in what the insurance company thinks they owe you and what you think you should get. Maybe that nice person who signed you up at 1-800-INSURANCE will work it out for you. Or make Whalen Insurance your local insurance agent. When we sign you up, don't be surprised if our rates are lower than the 800 number. We'll get every available discount for you. We'll get you the right coverage. And if you ever need help with a claim, our door's open. Whalen Insurance. Call us for a quote. 586-1000. Your local agent working in partnership with Arbella Insurance. Whalen Insurance. Local people. Local service. 
Local insurance. Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. There are days where you just want to hang a sign on the door. Gone fishing. But you're not going to get a line in the water today. So you go to Paul and Elizabeth's, which may be the next best thing. Order the fish and chips. It's tempura style fish. The batter's so light and airy. The chips are fresh cut in Paul and Elizabeth's kitchen. Have you tried Paul and Elizabeth's Cajun sampler? Shrimp, scallops, and cod with a spicy etouffee sauce. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. You know, they call it historical fiction. I suppose uh, so much of uh, literature that is written about history becomes historical fiction because so much of the conversation and the quotes and the settings have to be imagined. I mean, Shakespeare made historical fiction famous by talking about uh, Caesars and the like and uh, trying to reimagine uh, what their lives were like. Well, this is about the first ladies, and one of them was the first lady of the United States, one of the, our truly great heroes in the history of this country, Eleanor Roosevelt. And um, the other is a civil rights leader who uh, we were just told by the co-author, um, Victoria Christopher Murray, that in fact uh, her work uh, gave rise to, like a lot of suffragettes, <laughs> a lot of women that we don't think of and in the headlines uh, actually gave rise to the civil rights movement as we came to know it. So, Victoria Christopher Murray, I just wanted to circle back to, you said earlier that writing about the relationship between this Caucasian first lady of the United States and um, black uh, African-American uh, civil rights leader um you felt that you and your co-author and dear friend Marie Benedict, you felt that it's autobiographical, and I just want you to flesh that out for us. Yeah, you know, it, the reason we say that is Marie and I, our friendship grew as we were, we didn't know each other. We just came to write, start writing together, and you cannot um, write every day about race when all of these things are happening around us in this country and not be changed and not become closer. You cannot be, stay away from becoming friends when you have to talk about um, issues of microaggressions and, and what words to use and how to do that. And one of the things that Marie and I now believe is that we're on a mission to give people the opportunity, almost a formula, to have this kind of friendship. You know, we've always said that we wanted to have a national conversation on race. And I always thought that was one of the dumbest things. What were we all supposed to do? Call up an 800 number and just start (laughs) talking? But now, in the safety of fiction, Marie and I are looking to write more books like this, where under fiction, people can not only be um, entertained and educated, but it gives everyone a safe place to ask questions they would have never asked before. And as we've been touring with this book, we get those questions in the audiences that have been 
um, integrated mixed audiences and people are talking to each other in the safety of fiction. And that's what we hope. We hope that white readers and black readers will find a white reader or a black reader to read this book with and then have a discussion. And maybe we could build some, you know, build some relationships in this country. So maybe we don't call an 800 number. We have millions of conversations with each other about race and about who we want to be, really. The book is The First Ladies. It is uh, written by uh, Victoria Christopher Murray, who's been joining us today, and Marie Benedict. It's an important read. It's an easy read. It's a crisp but thought-provoking experience to read The First Ladies. And I thank you so much for joining us, uh, Victoria Christopher Murray. Thank you so much for having me. It was our pleasure. And for the rest of us, thank you for listening to Talk the Talk. And remember, like Marie and Victoria, walk the walk. Forbes Library is Northampton's public library with an amazing circulating collection of over 325,000 items, including bestsellers, recent releases, tons of movies, large print books, ebooks, audiobooks, and an extensive collection for kids and teens featuring board books, picture books, chapter books, and graphic novels. The library even has musical instruments that you can borrow. You can search the library's catalog online at ForbesLibrary.org, and while you're there, you can request a card and place items on hold. The library's website is also a great place to find out about upcoming programs and events which are always free and open to the public. We have story times, book clubs for kids, teens, and adults, poetry discussions, film discussions, author talks, concerts, movies for grown-ups, and so much more. Visit ForbesLibrary.org for more information and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to keep up with all the latest happenings. It's your library. Make the most of it. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. Bill Newman is off today and uh but i'll tell you who's not off today brian adams who does our science and sensibility segment every thursday and we just can't wait because we learn so much about the world around us about the climate that we live in and in this case a lot about grow food northampton brian it has been a tough uh july for farmers out there it's always tough to farm but my goodness this last july we had such heat such humidity and then the rain. We were, had the most rainfall in western Massachusetts of any place in the country, in North America, in the month of July. I think there are 72 farms that, are, that have to apply for some sort of an aid. With uh, we are, Yeah, we're a federal, federally declared disaster area because we've lost millions, over 10 million in, in crops. And we're talking about our local food supply, which we zealously want to be local, right? And so what we want to talk about the next 25 minutes is not just gloom and doom of the challenges that farmers face, but also the resiliency, the coming together of people to aid farmers and low-income community gardeners in distress. And to help us with that conversation is Elisa Klein, Elisa's director of a marvelous organization 
in Northampton called Grow Food Northampton. Elisa, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Let's begin by telling our listeners, for those that don't know, who, what Grow Food Northampton is, what you do, and then we'll get to the gloom and doom, and then on to the resiliency and coming together of community. Yeah. Well, uh, Grow Food Northampton is a local food and farming organization, and we uh, we have a mission to um, create a sustainable um, and just local food system that nourishes the community, but also the earth. And you do that how? Uh, we do that through all kinds of programming. We do own and steward a 121-acre community farm that has 10 farms on it that we lease land to, and we offer land from, on a sliding scale fee from $0 to market rates, depending on the person. We prioritize farmers of color and farmers from other communities that have been marginalized or harmed by the, the food system, the conventional uh, industrial food system. We have a 325-plot community garden where we also prioritize farmers of color, low-income uh, gardeners, people who, who need to grow food to sustain themselves. Uh, we also have programming that is about food access. We uh, deliver food to about 500 households every week, local farm food, um, and we have education programming. It's an impressive array of services around the local food uh, economy. July, 17 inches of rain. Uh, tell us what happened at Grow Food. You're right next to the Mill River. People right. who know where Smith College is, where Paradise Pond is, right sort of downstream from that, the mill, beautiful mill, the tranquil mill, the kind mill, um, just went flowing over its uh, banks in these in these crazy July rainstorms. Yeah. What happened? Yeah, on July 10th, uh, there was a flash flood. So we didn't really have warning. We knew that there was a lot of rain, but we did not have the kind of warning that sometimes you get with floods where you see the, the uh, water creeping up on the banks of a river. It happened very suddenly, over 14 feet of water. The Mill River is usually at about 8, 9 feet. All of a sudden at 14.6 feet, uh, the Mill River jumped its banks on two different sides of our farm and converged in the middle to create this crazy torrent that brought about six feet of water onto the community farm. Six feet of water onto the farm. In some places, in our lowest places. So we had um, two farms lose their crops in their entirety, and then another six farms lose anywhere between 30 and 90% of their crops. They were pretty much wiped out. We lost 300 of the 325 uh, community garden plots. So all of those gardeners many of whom rely on that food for sustenance, lost their entire, uh, their entire crop. Oh, my goodness. That is just stunning. And this was in a matter of hours? Is that it was right? in a matter of 20 minutes. Oh, my goodness. We, we had folks on the farm at 1030 in the morning. We were kind of checking just in case there was going to be flooding. People were saying, no, it's fine. By 1040, there was already about two feet of water. And then by 11 o'clock, we had five to six feet of water 
in many places on the community farm. So it really happened within a matter of 20 minutes. Was the topsoil also washed away? uh, Topsoil was washed away. Major infrastructural pieces were washed away. We lost water pumps, you know, down the Mill River, never to be seen again. Um, All kinds of uh, fruits that were on the vine, vegetables that were on the vine were washed away. Um, sheds were toppled. It was a really, it was a very dramatic thing. I got there as the water was rising and I couldn't, we saw a dumpster float by that came from a, an adjacent home. Holy smokes. Yeah, that is really, really scary stuff. And this was right before harvest at yes. the worst possible time with food ripening, ready to be picked. And boom, this happens. Yeah, we said we weren't going to talk about doom and gloom, but this is the situation is that most of the flooding, we are in a 100-year flood zone and a small part of our farm is in a 10-year flood zone. But um, this, it's very unusual to have a midsummer flood. It's usually in the winter when you don't have fruits and vegetables on the vine, on the plant. So this hit right when, right, literally a day or two before a lot was going to be harvested, which means that entire crops were completely obliterated. And you were telling me that one of the farmers who relies very heavily on eggplants because it's his cash crop, was ready to pick the next day. That's right. And then, boom, this th- He this lost happens. his entire crop, $9,000 worth of eggplant. Yeah. Oh, boy. Okay, yeah. we're going to stay on the gloom and doom for just a little longer, <laughs> Elisa, and then we'll move back. We're talking with Elisa Klein. She's the director of Grow Food Northampton. Elisa, when a river floods, like the Mill River, it, and six feet of water coming onto the farms and gardens, it can carry with it pollutants and pathogens. Are, and then once water recedes, are crops safe to eat after that? No, they're not. And I really appreciate that you're asking that question, Brian, because a lot of people are coming to the farm to see kind of the post-flood picture. And I've overheard you know, people talking, saying, oh, this doesn't look so bad. You know, I see these beautiful fruits and flowers. But all of it has to be pulled and not consumed because of those contaminants in the river. Uh, The Massachusetts Department of Agricultural Resources, MDAR, provides post-flood guidance, and they came out to the farm and spoke with us and all the farmers three days after the flood and gave very explicit instructions about what we could and couldn't do, and we cannot eat anything that was touched by flood water because of the the pollutants in the river. That's called glow food, Northampton. Oh, uh, that's painful. <laughs> oh, very painful. And so wh- when can farmers or community gardeners plant again? Is there anything that's going to come out of this season? Most things only next season. Uh, there are a few. They MDAR in their guidance says that there are some crops and they rate them um, on three levels of risk that can be replanted 60 to 90 days later. But it's a very short window because, you know, we're in New England. The winter is going to come. Um, so there are some crops that can be replanted in 60 to 90 days. My goodness, that is just stunning. Let's move off the gloom and doom in of, of flooded fields and uh, infrastructure being washed away and loss of crops to the community response, which has been quite stunning. Uh, can you tell us what's happened in the 
Uh, we're about a month out after this July 7th catastrophe. Yeah, I love talking about this because it is, it, it's been incredibly heartwarming to um, receive that community response. And I think all of the farms that were affected by the flooding feel similarly. Um, we, ought to, uh, as soon as the flooding happened, we put out word. We let people know that we were going to create work parties to assist the farmers to try and clean, recoup whatever could be recouped. And we, within a week, we had over 200 people sign up to volunteer for work parties. We had nine work parties in the span of about less than two weeks, fewer than two weeks. And people came out. We, We could only manage groups of 30 people, but 30 people came to each work party, got assigned to one of the farms, and just worked so hard, really hard physical work, dirty work, clearing out debris, picking up all of the trash that got deposited by the floods, pulling crops that needed to be pulled, um, picking up tarps that were under, you know, a foot of mud. It was really remarkable. And we also crowdsourced funding and, um, our just incredible response. We're almost at $100,000, our goal for funding, though we still need to raise about 15000 more. Grow Food Northampton is, supports our farms, the farms that lease land from us. And one of the things we're committed to doing is uh, giving cash to the farms that were affected by the flooding. And we're also um, offering cash to uh, gardeners who self-declare as needing funds because they relied on their food for sustenance. So we're giving funding directly to farms and to community gardeners who lost their crops and replacing infrastructure on the community farm. So listeners that have resources available, Grow Food is certainly looking for those donations. Um, And you know that every dollar that you send in will go directly to a farmer who's just been devastated by crop loss. And Executive Director uh, Elisa Klein, how do people get give a donation to uh, Grow Food Northampton? Yeah, we have a, what's called a Give Butter site, but you can go directly to our website and find the link there very easily. It's growfoodnorthampton.org. And uh, on our homepage, you'll get directed to how you can um, either volunteer for work parties that we're having in the future or to donate funds. What has been the state and federal response um, to this? And it, has it been helpful for you? Yeah, well, the, the, within two days after the floods, the, the Department of Agriculture sent, uh, its commissioner came, its deputy commissioner came, did a, a, a tour of all the farms that were affected at that point in Western Massachusetts. They were on Grow Food Northampton's farm. Um, The state legislature, thanks to Joe Comerford, was a big pusher of this. Our local state senator uh, created a $20 million fund that was just signed uh, into law by the governor last week. Um, And that money will be available at some point to cover crop loss specifically. It does not cover uh, infrastructure, lost infrastructure, lost hours, labor. But that's an an amazing... um, boon for the farmers that they can apply for those funds. Uh, And the governor established a private fund, and so they're essentially crowdsourcing funding as well that will be administered through the uh, United Way of of, uh, Central Massachusetts. So lots of avenues out there to hopefully help farmers 
and community gardeners as well in need. But and, and we're just so grateful the governor has come out here and really paid attention, the lieutenant governor as well, to this kind of damage, which we're used to seeing on TV, but instead it's happening right here. Before we take a break, I want to ask you, Brian Adams, or if you'd like to, uh, Director Lisa Klein of Grow Food Northampton. Uh, Brian, as a scientist, as a climatologist, you're always telling me there's a difference between weather and climate, but this kind of deluge, this kind of unthinkable damage caused by rain, um, is this a product of climate and, and, and the cli- changes that we have in climate? Is this a something we just have to get used to living with? We, we had um, Brian Lapis on uh, a couple months ago, who's the weatherman, uh, for this station and for uh, Channel 22. And what Brian said is, you know, as the climate warms, which it is, I mean, we know this, it holds much more moisture. And what we're going to see in Massachusetts is these rain events that are more intense and more frequent. Uh, someone said we're going to become the Seattle of of the United States, like, oh, rain, rain, rain. Um, but not just little rain, big rain. And this, is, I think, is the new normal. Um, and this is what concerns me, Elisa. We're, we're going to take a break. But when we come back, um, how, you know, given the fact that your farms and fields are right next to the Mill River, what, with climate change rearing its ugly head events like this, are probably going to be the new normal? Are there steps that you can take to prevent the Mill River from doing what it's going to do. Uh, stick with us. We're talking with Lisa Klein, the director of Grow Food Northampton, about farming and the challenges of farming in the valley. the talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Come on over to the co-op, the Greenfield Cooperative Bank. Hi, I'm Missy Tatro, Vice President of Mortgage Originations at Greenfield Cooperative Bank. Did you know now is the perfect time to save on your mortgage? I'm mortgage originator Kimberly Gates. That's right. At Greenfield Co-op, it pays to get pre-approved. I'm mortgage originator Jessica Eau Claire. If you're looking to buy a home, be sure to get a GCB pre-approval to save up to $1,250 on your mortgage closing costs. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. 
close by September 30th, be a new first mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider, minimum $100,000 loan amount, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. Get takeout, save 30%. Get candles or hit the links, save 30%. Dog grooming, outdoor recreation, burritos, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were gonna buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. So during the break, we were talking with uh, Brian and Elisa Klein, the executive director of Grow Food Northampton. And I'll tell you, um, these are tough times, Brian. These are. And climate change, you know, again, it is here. Now, you know, do we know this? Well, we know what's happening. We know the earth is warming. July, the hottest month ever. On record, there globally, were two, globally, the two days the hottest temperatures ever. Um, I mean, it is here; it's rearing its ugly head, uh, and there are things we can do about it. I mean, that's the good news: this whole shift, this transition to renewable energy, this looking at our lifestyles, and a lot of what we can do to combat climate change is to support local farmers and the food that local farmers. Uh, produce. And we're so pleased to have Elisa Klein with us, Director of Grow Food Northampton. Before we get on to sort of mitigation efforts, um, we were joking before the show, not really joking, it was kind of nervous laughter. You began your job as Executive Director two months before COVID hit. <laughs> yeah. So you go from... Oh, it's your fault. So, <laughs> so talk about a incredible entry into your job. And it's been three and a half years of a roller coaster ride, more I think ups than or downs than ups. Can you tell us about this? The uh, how are you doing this? How are you managing to hang in there through such stressful times? First, I want to say to Buzz that correlation of events is not causality, so yes. I did not cause COVID. But um, yes, but, but you did cause Trump. Admit <laughs> it, you caused Trump. But it, it's been a, a crazy three and a half years to go from kind of crisis where we had to pivot and become essentially a local food distribution organization that supported people when um, food insecurity rose astronomically in the Northampton area to now responding to a devastating flood that essentially is really affecting our local food system um, has been a lot. And it's exactly why we need an organization, if I may say so myself, like Grow Food Northampton, that is really tending to carefully thinking about what we need to do to support a vibrant local food system and to bring kind of a justice framework, a lens through which we um, we create the local food system, making sure that people who have been food insecure, have been harmed by the conventional food system, have access to food, have access to land, places to grow their own food. Um, and that that is what we see as food justice, and that's what Grow Food Northampton does. I just want to applaud the efforts that you have and your staff has and all the volunteers to come out in these very difficult, challenging times and do something about it. I want to get back to this this issue of 
of planting and growing next to the Mill River. Um, this is going to happen again, right? I mean, it's the probably, definitely, uh, what can you do about it? Is, are there any steps that farmers can take to try to mitigate rising floodwaters from a river that is going to flood? Yes, that's a perfect question. Um, and we're very aware that we have to do a lot more than just recover from this flood. We really have to be thinking about building resilience for the long term because of the the increase in climate change wrought disaster, whether it be drought or floods or pests, we're really seeing that much more in agriculture. And certainly small-scale agriculture can't sustain itself with that level of uh, disaster threat like big industrial ag can a lot better. Um, so we actually, about a year and a half ago, we developed, or a little bit longer ago, we developed a 10-year farm plan. And as part of that farm plan, we uh, just a year and a half ago started mapping out the farm and the elevation and the flood-prone areas and figuring out what we could and could do in those areas. We are actually um, committed now to revising the plan now that we have a lot more kind of insight into what can happen um, so that we are going to be moving around some of the farms that we have in the lower lying areas. We're looking at different ways of planting things. We are uh, developing a much more robust riparian buffer. So on the river, we're uh, putting trees that are particularly send down really deep roots to prevent erosion that can help mitigate flooding. Uh, a lot of reedy plants, a lot of woody plants that uh, absorb water better. So we're doing all kinds of things to both remediate the soil, but also um, prevent kind of the levels of devastation that flooding can bring to the farm. That's really encouraging to know there are steps that you and farmers and your staff can take to try to try to mitigate this. One question I wanted to ask you, Elise, and we're running out of time here, is... Uh, how is the mental health of, of the farmers? I mean, oh, this is a so devastating thoughtful loss. of you to ask that. Yeah. How are people doing? Yeah. It's, it's, um, that's a really good question because we are seeing, you know, we're talking all the time to the farms um, and to the community gardeners, and people feel really traumatized. You know, every time it rains now, I feel, I get nervous. I've been down to the river. The minute it starts to rain, I get down to the river and start watching it, or I'm on the internet looking at the different sites that, that monitor the levels of the Mill River. Um, people are scared. And I think, um, you know, we've been worried that a lot of our community gardeners aren't going to return next year because they feel, you know, devastated and hopeless. But the reality is, is, I mean, the hum human spirit is remarkable and people are bouncing back. And the ways in which the community has come forward to support people really buoys us and really helps us to feel like we can do this. We have to do it smarter. We have to kind of grow back better is the phrase that we've been using. But um, I, think, I think people are going to rebound okay. But there is some devastation there and some real traumatization. It's a challenging, challenging times that we live in. It's, and it's so uplifting to know that the work that you're doing is supporting di directly to farmers and to, and to farmers of color and to low-income folks with, with community uh, gardens. But yeah, I, guess, but I guess the real question for you, Elisa Klein, is for the listeners who are uh, listening, it wrapped attention because it's, it's frightening. 
it's demoralizing. There's a little bit of hope that we're, what can people do? What can people do? Well, the most important thing is to support local farms, to not buy um, the the kind of mass industrial produced fruit and vegetables that you see um, at grocery stores so much. Sorry, I, I don't want to uh, uh, take people away from shopping at their favorite grocery stores, but you know, our local farms are producing the most beautiful produce. They need your support. My organization would love your support either as a volunteer or as somebody who donates to the organization, either for flood relief or for our efforts to grow back better. Um, get involved with your local farms. Know who they are. Uh Find out where their farm stands are, where they sell, which grocery stores uh, sell that local produce. That's, that's the kind of thing that can really support the local food system. We've been talking with Lisa Klein. She is director of Grow Food Northampton, doing wonderful work. And uh, it's a story of gloom and doom, but it's also a story of the power of community to come together to support our local farmers to grow back better. I like that. Uh, and, it's our uh, new catchphrase. New catchphrase. <laughs> thank you so much, Elisa. Thank you for having me, Brian. Well, thank you, Brian. We'll be right back with Glenn Siegel. We got a really interesting musician to introduce you to. Visitors and fish smell after three days. Our leader was a silver-tongued man. He deceived the people of the land. And when he got caught, he couldn't stand. It's a little offbeat and a little off track, but it says in the farm. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. An East Hampton woman was arraigned in Hampshire Superior Court yesterday on murder charges. 23-year-old Jean Marie Ecavera of East Hampton pleaded not guilty to a charge of murder and will be held without bail. She is accused of stabbing and killing her boyfriend, 23-year-old Brennan David Blue, inside an apartment they shared in East Hampton. Police were called to the apartment around 3.10 a.m. Tuesday, March 14th, where they found Blue with multiple stab wounds. He was taken to Bay State Medical Center but died from his injuries just before 4 a.m. Ecavera had previously pleaded not guilty to murder in Northampton District Court, but she was later indicted by a grand jury in the Hampshire County Superior Court. A Granby man and business owner has died following a motorcycle crash involving an alleged drunk driver on Friday. 51-year-old Richard DeVue of Granby was riding his motorcycle on Route 41 in Hillsborough County in Florida when another vehicle collided into the rear of his motorcycle. DeVue was ejected from the bike in the crash and died from the incident. The other driver, a 26-year-old man from Tampa, Florida, is facing multiple charges, including driving under the influence. Conway Fire, along with Charlemont and Deerfield Fire crews, performed a river rescue last night. Four Rhode Island women were tubing in the Deerfield River from Bardwell's Ferry Bridge when one flipped her tube in an area without access to shore, and the group called 911. Rescue teams located the woman stranded on shore downstream and brought them to Stillwater Bridge, the next access point on the river. One woman was transported to Cooley Dickinson with an injured ankle. Mostly cloudy this morning, showers developing this afternoon. That rain could be occasionally heavy and steady. A high of 78 to 82. Evening showers, chance for some thunder and lightning, and then clearing out overnight, a low of 56 to 62. Mostly sunny, 80 to 84 tomorrow. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. 
Technicians, this is your chance. Get up to a $5,000 sign-on bonus at Gary Rome Hyundai or refer a technician to get a $2,500 referral fee. Be part of the family and receive truly exceptional compensation and full benefits. Join the Time Magazine's National Dealer of the Year team with a proven track record of team members averaging over 10 years at Gary Rome Hyundai. Technicians get up to a $5,000 sign-on bonus or refer a technician to get a $2,500 referral fee. To learn more and apply, go to GaryRomeHyundai.com family. Do you have a garden? Do you love fresh vegetables? I bet you'll love Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant. Where vegetables aren't a token afterthought, they're the reason you're there. Seven salads, nine vegetarian entrees, plus soups and the vegetable risotto cakes. A lot of the vegetables at Paul and Elizabeth's arrive from local farms. When vegetables arrive in Paul and Elizabeth's kitchen, they take center stage. Try the kale and sea vegetable salad. Try the tempura vegetable plate with sesame ginger dipping sauce. Some people make insurance sound so simple. You know, just call 1-800-INSURANCE. We'll save you money. Sounds pretty simple. So you call, give your credit card, and you're insured. They're hoping you'll never call back. Hoping you'll never have a claim. Because that's when insurance isn't so simple. In fact, it can get outright complicated. So many insurance claims have some little thing, or not so little thing, that ends up with a difference in what the insurance company thinks they owe you and what you think you should get. Maybe that nice person who signed you up at 1-800-INSURANCE will work it out for you. Or make Whalen Insurance your local insurance agent. When we sign you up, don't be surprised if our rates are lower than the 800 number. We'll get every available discount for you. We'll get you the right coverage. And if you ever need help with a claim, our door is open. Whalen Insurance. Call us for a quote. 586-1000. Your local agent working in partnership with Arbella Insurance. Whalen Insurance. Local people. Local service. Local insurance. And weekly we usher in our Take 5 segment with Dave Brubeck's classic Take 5. We have Glenn Siegel today with a very talented alto sax player, Glenn what do you have for us today? Yes, we have Sarah Manning in the studio, uh, who's a saxophonist and composer with four critically acclaimed albums to her name. Uh, as a band leader, she's performed at venues across the United States, including Dizzy's Club at Lincoln Center, Roulette, Yoshi's, and the Tanglewood Jazz Festival, and was a McDowell Fellow in composition in 2012 and 2021. In June, in a June 2022 Pioneer Valley Jazz shares performance at Hawks and Reed in Greenfield, Mass. Uh, Manning debuted a new trio performing a version of her work, Transmuting Anger, focused on the exploration of women's anger around sexism and sexual harassment. Sarah Manning, welcome to All That Jazz on WHMP. Well, it's a pleasure to be here yeah. on live radio. Yes. <laughs> um, I love your statement from your website, and, and I'll quote it. Um, my approach as a saxophonist and composer is informed by studying with the late multi-instrumentalist Dr. Youssef Latif, who emphasized finding one's own voice in music by pursuing a path of inquiry rather than a replication of tradition. I love that phrase, pursuing a path of inquiry rather than a replication of tradition. Uh, tell us how that ethos has informed your career. 
Sure. Um, well, I had the, um, I've been in and out of the Valley for a long time and I studied um, undergrad at Smith College. Um, I graduated from there and uh, a long time ago. Um, <laughs> and while I was there, I got to study with Yusuf Latif, who was one of the professors in the five colleges. And uh, he had a little class over at Hampshire. Um, and I was in his office for office hours once, and I brought in some of my music, and I was playing uh, classic jazz standards. And he kind of stopped me afterwards, and he said some really nice things, but he also he said, well, that's music from 50 years ago, you know, at the time. Um, and, you know, the purpose is to find your own voice. Um, and I think that that really has, you know, that that permission to kind of think that way and to to get outside of the academy. He was in an academic setting, but he it's always a, that juxtaposition with uh, jazz music and black American music in an academic setting has always been kind of fraught um, with this idea that, you know, there are players coming up now where you have to learn exactly this, these five things, and, and um, that maybe takes away from the expression mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a hero of mine as well. Um, yeah, but what do you think about that thesis? That because I love the music of fifty years ago, I love the jazz, the, the jazz classics. And apropos to look at Sarah's um, T-shirt, which has a dinosaur holding a poster that says "Make some art," which I assume means <laughs> make create some art now. Yeah, I think that it's really interesting. I I love that he said that to you. And I hate that he said that to you. Well, I think that it's not its not that you should reject or not understand the past or study the history or learn the techniques or anything like that. It's more that um, it's like um, sometimes I, it's, it's the idea that you should try to find your own voice within that. And I think that... Um, we talk about this with education generally. It's it's uh, learning by rote, and then also, but also, what about the feeling and the emotion behind it? Um, and I think that that's that's kind of what he was getting at is that life is a he himself uh, was an example of someone who is always inquiring and thinking. Of, he was an artist in so many different forms in his life. He was a painter, and so I think that that is is really what he was getting at. He wasn't saying you know reject this music because I love it too. It's the history. It's so uh, wonderful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those are my heroes. Yeah. Yeah. So you currently reside in Northampton and as you mentioned you're a graduate of Smith College. Tell us about the journey that brought you to the valley, what keeps you here and how you interact with the local music scene and and tell us a little bit about your experience at Smith musically and otherwise. Sure, that's a big question. Um <laughs> Multiple I'll try questions. to make a small answer. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, I'll say that, uh, when I was back at Smith, one of the things that I used to do, um, I made it actually going back to this inquiry question, I made a very, uh, choice. I was at William Patterson for jazz studies. Um, and I left to pursue, um, women's studies at Smith college. Um, and I had at William Patterson, I was only studying one thing, which was music. And, and I really, um, I really wanted to broaden my perspective to say more on my instrument, um, which re- led me to Smith. And I fell in love with the Valley the first time I came here and went down to Haymarket and saw people, uh, you know, studying um, and reading, you know, reading their class notes and drinking tea <laughs> and coffee. And um, so that's kind of what sold me on it. But I've also been, um, I used to play on the street downtown uh, in front of the, uh, the old safe um, on Main Street and where the art gallery is. Uh, and 
I have been in, I don't know, I, I guess I could say that as an artist, I need that open space to fill my brain in order to create. And the Valley has so much of that. It's also got a wonderful queer community and uh, which I feel very much a part of. And also um, you can head out of town in five minutes and be up on top of a mountain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, beautiful. Um, so your project called Transmuting Anger is about women's reaction to a serious and seemingly intractable problem regarding sexism and sexual harassment. Tell us about this work uh, and tell us about, and then tell our audience about your Greenfield performance last year. Sure. Um, so I think that anger is actually, it's an emotion that's very powerful. Um, and uh, the project I'm working on now is called We Will Not Be Composed, which is a longer term work that has some roots in the instrumentation that we had in Greenfield. Um, and it's with a collaboration with an author, Soraya Shamali, who talks about anger as the most important social emotion. So when you're sad about something, uh, it's not necessarily an impetus to change, but anger has that fuel that can help you um, create change. So in that way, it's it's a very it's a very cathartic emotion. It's it's a catalyst, um, and it's something that a lot of women are well, most women are trained not to feel. And we think of anger as like you know violence or throwing things at walls. Well, it can be so many different things. And I think that I've been very interested in recognizing my own anger and turning it into something that is speaking out for change. And then in terms of music is to to take those those feelings and to transmute it, uh, which isn't a word from alchemy, but transmute it into something uh, that is tangible and powerful that reaches people. I have a question for you, Sarah Manning, but I'd also like to hear you, Glenn Siegel. Maybe I should start with you. As somebody who for decades has presented us with music over the radio and who was the uh, originator of Jazz Shares and who comes in contact with so many musicians, there was a time when a woman horn player was just an anomaly. It was just a really rare thing. And part of the uniqueness, part of the attraction was not her musicality. It was that a woman was playing a horn, which was traditionally a male bastion. Hopefully, we've changed. Hopefully, the gender of the player is not nearly as important as what we're hearing. Uh, is that, you as a musicologist, is my impression that it's changing right? And what do you say about women and jazz? Yeah, well, that's a big question. But certainly it is changing. I mean, in our upcoming season uh, for jazz shares, which starts in September, we have three, well, right off the top of my head, three fierce tenor players who are coming. Uh, Anna Weber is bringing a, an ensemble. Uh, Ingrid Labrock is, is coming with her ensemble. And... Uh, a very young tenor player from Tennessee who's like 23 years old, Zoe Amba, is performing a duo concert with Chris Corsano. Um, so certainly, as far as sheer numbers, it's, it's really changing. Um, and Sarah Manning, what about being a woman in jazz, particularly a horn player, as an alto sax player, it, it's, you've been described as a master. Um, I don't mean that in a, in a gender way. Of, of the alto sax, you, as a woman, as a queer woman, I think, um, yeah. what's your experience? <laughs> um, well, I, I think that the first thing I want to say is that 
this question gets asked to me so many times. Um, I've heard it every single year that I have been playing this instrument. And I hope that at some point in the future that doesn't happen. But I, I will also say that in terms of the history of the music, there have always been women, there have always been non-binary musicians, queer musicians have been part of the music scene. And so it's not that all of a sudden, I mean, yes, there are more role models. So there are more women and non-binary musicians who are playing today, um, more musicians who are, are, you know, getting further in their career than they had before. But going all the way back to the Sweethearts of Rhythm, International Sweethearts of Rhythm Band, which was notable for both being, this is, uh, correct me here, Glenn, is it 1940s? Yeah, yeah I think um, it's And they were years. one of many, many bands that were all women uh, when men were at war. Um, and going back to that band, women have always existed. And that band especially was also a band of white musicians and black musicians and integrated and traveling the country and experiencing death threats and things like that. Um, so so they've always been there. And it's really just about getting, uh, continuing to elevate them and, you know, hiring hiring them uh, and, and going forward in, in that sense. Mm-hmm. That's a great place to take a break. Okay. We're going to take a break for a couple of minutes. This is a really interesting conversation we're having with Sarah Manning. And, of course, our own Glenn Siegel will be right back. is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Tag your it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to three right here on WHMP. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny little necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Banking with Greenfield Savings Bank is more rewarding than ever with our free You Choose Rewards. You Choose is our debit cards reward program that rewards you every time you use your GSB debit MasterCard. You Choose Rewards is free. And with You Choose Rewards, you'll earn points that can be redeemed for dining, shopping, traveling, cashback, donations, and more. Link your GSB debit MasterCard with your mobile wallet, including Apple Pay, Google Pay, Samsung Pay, and PayPal. It's easy to start earning with You Choose Rewards. Just go to our website and sign up for You Choose Rewards for your GSB debit MasterCard. It's free. All you need to do is sign up and you'll earn rewards every time you use your GSB debit MasterCard. You Choose Rewards, the free debit card rewards program that earns you points every time you use your GSB debit MasterCard. 
Sign up today at greenfieldsavings.com slash you choose. Greenfield Savings Bank, member FDIC, member DIF. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back. And all that jazz with Glenn Siegel and Sarah Manning, his guest today. Uh, I'm loving this conversation, Glenn. Yeah, it's great. And, you know, we were just before the break talking about the role of women in jazz and sexism uh, in music and elsewhere. Um, And I was just reminded about um, a couple of organizations that came to mind. One is uh, co-led by Sarah Serper and Jen Chu uh, called uh, Mutual Mentorship. Mutual mentors for musicians, yeah, yeah. M three, yeah, yeah, they're great. Um, and then there's, uh, you know, Berkeley School of Music, which has long been, you know, has a sordid history around sexism, and um, well, I shouldn't say that, but uh, well, it's, you know, it's true actually. I mean, there's yeah. uh, the article in the Boston Globe a number, uh, not so long ago with uh, yeah with sexual harassment and true, and uh, so uh, Terry Lynn Carrington well. and Chris Davis. Have uh, are spearheading a gender studies uh, program there? Or? Yeah, their actual. I love their slogan, um, which is "Jazz without patriarchy." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. So things are changing. To answer your question, Buzz. Um, so, have you had any interaction with the uh, uh, Sarah and uh, Jen's mutual mentorship uh, program? I have been. Uh, I have. Uh, Definitely would love to be part of a future cohort. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know uh, a number of people have been in the program recently and have had just wonderful experiences. Yeah, and tell us in in a nutshell how how that functions. Uh, Well, I I can't really speak to all the details, but what I really like about it is that um, in terms of mentorship, there's often uh, seen as a hierarchy um, where there's a mentor and a mentee. Whereas this is more of a mutual situation where there's no hierarchy and you have musicians of different generations and instruments and genres that come together um, to to work with each other for a set period of time and create something. Mm-hmm. Great. Our guest is Sarah Manning. And um, your website is labeled Underwater Alchemy Laboratory. And I want to talk a little bit about alchemy. Uh, which sure. is not a topic that comes up uh, all that often on uh, All About Jazz. Um, but you, you, you also used alchemy symbols as part of your Greenfield performance last year. Um, so for those of us who don't know what alchemy is, tell us what it is and your relationship to it and how it figures into your work. Sure. Um, I, I, I have to laugh a little bit here because, Glenn, every single time it's... It's underworld alchemy. So you've been taking me into the <laughs> You're putting into the her deep. underwater. You're putting me in the deep. Oh, it's um, underworld. <laughs> I don't know why. I have uh, probably because of the <laughs> deluge we've been seeing. That's, that's the aquatic, the aquatic <laughs> okay. version of this. Anyway, um, but yes, I am not in any way an expert on alchemy. Um, what I will say is that, and what I did with my performance with William Hooker and um, with uh, Suzanne Farron uh, up at, in Greenfield, so William Hooker's a legendary drummer um and uh suzanne plays the own marchino which is a, a a strange uh beautiful french synthesizer from the 20s um in any case what it means to me is alchemy is a belief that you can turn uh 
something and one element into another or something into gold. Um, it's very not real. It's not scientific based, but it actually the early alchemists were kind of uh, shunned by society and they were uh, led to the idea of the scientific method. Um, so even though they were chasing their tail, um, it led to these discoveries. And for me, it's a perfect metaphor for music, which is that you really have to suspend your disbelief when you create art and you have to, to look into, um, yeah, you're, you're taking, for me, it's taking one thing, anger and turning it into something else is where I come from that, that, that root of alchemy mm -hmm. in my music. And, um, and tell us a little bit more. You you refer to uh, a, a newer project called We Will Not Be Composed, which is a multimedia piece that you wrote with author and activist Soraya Chamali. Tell us a little bit more about that project. Yeah, well, Soraya and I, um, Soraya Chamali wrote a book called Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger back in 2018. Um, and at that same time, I was working on the Transmuting Anger piece, and we had mutual friends, and we came to... Uh, each other, uh, and I reached out to her, and um, this piece is catalyzing the voices of women uh, speaking about anger, sometimes whispering, sometimes uh, more forceful, um, as part of a multimedia piece with seven instruments and visual projections, so it'll become both an installation and a performance. It's a long-term piece I'm working on. I'm not sure when it will premiere, but it's been um, fantastic to actually work with with a group, a diverse group of women for this piece. I just want to point out we don't we only have a couple of minutes, but uh, it, that was really interesting, Sarah Manning, because the word compose. I think of composure. We will not be yeah, that's forced <laughs> to be composed, but you are a composer. I, I love a good pun or play <laughs> on words, I, I have to say. So we will not be composed is, is very much about that. And one of the best parts of this piece was I did a residency at McDowell a couple of years ago, and um, I took the S sounds out of all of these women's voices and arranged it like percussion in, and other instruments. And it's it's just this really amazing cathartic sound that plays on the idea of a bunch of women being angry and hissing. Um, but it's music, and it's beautiful, and it's also uh, really drives home the point that anger is all around us, and we need to respond. Mm, yeah. Um, so we're wrapping up here uh, on WHMP. Um, tell us any... Uh, Upcoming work that you're especially excited about? Any local performances? And, and how can people find out more about you and your activities? Sure. Um, thank you. Um, they can go to sarahmanningmusic.com. Uh, that's S-A-R-A-H-M-A-N-N-I-N-G music.com uh, for information about my projects, uh, Photoshop pictures of my cats, um, <laughs> and sound clips I could also be found on on the major streaming services um previous records I also uh, did a record with I'm on William Hooker's record in 2021 that I'm really proud of it's an actual vinyl um but as far as performances I'm really focused on composing right now and I'm not sure when my next local performance will be uh and I usually get to the city a couple every couple months to New York City to perform she will not be composed, but she will compose. This is just really wonderful to meet you, Sarah. And um, Nice to meet you as well. Yeah, and I was looking at your website, and people should really check out uh, the website, and I love the alchemy uh, 
notion that you've you've seen. You, Glenn Siegel, you always bring us these great artists. I'm just so glad. Yeah, well, there's so many great artists uh, living right in our midst. It's unbelievable. uh, What a rich... So we're not going to run out anytime soon. A rich laboratory this region is for incredible talent. Thank you for having me, Glenn and and Buzz. It's a pleasure. And whatever you're doing, go ahead and break a leg and fix it with an alchemist flair. Thank you all (laughs) for joining us on Talk to Talk. Remember, like Sarah, walk the walk. WHMP is looking for organizations that regularly distribute information about employment opportunities to job applicants or have job applicants to refer. If your organization would like to receive notification of job vacancies at our station, please notify us at Careers, WHMP Radio, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Massachusetts, 01060, phone number 413-586-7400, or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity employer and encourages minorities and females to apply. Want to make a difference in a big way? Nearly 200 children in Hampshire County are on a waiting list to be matched with adult mentors called Bigs. Children who are matched with mentors through Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Hampshire County do better in school, report higher self-confidence, and have better relationships with peers. Start something. Call 413-259-3345 and volunteer or donate to Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Hampshire County. WHMP Northampton and WRSI.